This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a neat grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our first-time guest, Andrew Mondia, an actor currently based in Toronto. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. It's great to be here to talk about tonight's movie. Excellent. So, Andrew, with all new guests to the show, we like to ask a few questions to allow the audience to get to know you. So, first up, tell us a little about yourself, what you do, and why you love movies. Well, it sort of will answer why I love movies in a nutshell as to what I do, because for most of my life, I have been in the world of entertainment, and uh, I've acted, danced, and sang on stage, and I've worked... I've been working in the the film industry and even worked behind the scenes. I started out in British Columbia, in Vancouver, Victoria, and then I worked my way to London and around the world. I'm now here in Toronto, and uh, I just love movies in general. I've always been an addict. It's been, it's sort of been my way to escape my own reality when I was growing up, because you know when we when someone deals with a lot of trauma. It's a great coping mechanism, (laughs) so to speak. Uh, And I just, you know, and I really got into musicals. And uh, tonight's movie is one of my favorite uh, movies as well. Well, great. We're going to get into that here in a second. But number two on our list, what is your favorite movie and why? My favorite movie is Mary Poppins. And I know it's been reviewed here on the show, <laughs> for, for me, it's the magic. How Disney combined real life people with animation and it also helps that there's a great cast, even though Dick Van Dyke didn't really do a great job in his accent. He's, he's, it's talked about so many times since the movie's come out, but I just, you know, the, the music, it just, it's uplifting. Yeah, we definitely covered that a couple of months back. It's my sister's favorite movie, and we did it for her birthday. Ah, that's so awesome. (laughs) Yes, we've become somewhat of a family show outside of just the two of us, but every member of my immediate family has been on at least one time, and I think most of us have been on at least twice at, at this point. So then the last question we always do, what makes a good movie for you? I think if you don't have to really look at the time because, uh, or if you don't fall asleep, mind you, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad movie if you fall asleep. It's just that it's heavy because there are some movies that I've watched and I've fallen asleep. And it's not necessarily to do with the acting. It's more to do with the fact that it's heavy and you need to take it in slow doses. And it doesn't hurt to have a really great cast because some movies that are made 
are just slopped together uh, and there's no care into it. Where others, there's care into the making of it. For instance, another movie that I could have talked about was E.T. Because I love that movie, really. Like, that's become one of my all-time favorites. Absolutely. All right. So, with those out of the way, tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to one of the most celebrated musicals of all time, The Sound of Music from 1965, directed by four-time Academy Award winner Robert Wise, written by Ernest Lehman, music by Richard Rogers, Oscar Hammerstein, and Erwin Kostel, and starring Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer. The Sound of Music was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, winning five, is only one of 11 films to at one time hold the title of highest grossing movie ever made, has appeared on several of the greatest movies of all time lists, including those by the BFI and AFI, and was selected by the Library of Congress to be preserved in the National Film Registry in 2001. So hopefully this is an easy question for you, Andrew, but you picked this movie as your choice to discuss tonight. Why The Sound of Music? Well, I'm into musicals, and it's a classic, and the cinematography is absolutely fabulous. Also, it has Julie Andrews. <laughs> so, What makes, I guess, this musical, though, stand out? I mean, in 1965, we're in an era where we had just come off of West Side Story. We had Gigi win Best Picture in the late 50s. We had Oliver, a year or two later, win Best Picture. We've had My Fair Lady. You just mentioned Mary Poppins is probably another one that could be in that vein. This was the era of musicals. What makes this one stand out? I think a lot of it has to do with the casting choice and how they they went to Austria for the uh, location shooting. And it was just like, you know, it was a huge undertaking, literally. I mean... <laughs> You know, it's one movie that I could watch over and over, and I have. But you can't get tired of it because it's feel-good. I mean, there's many components when it comes to making a film, really. I mean, it, it's it's like you, you think that something like that would maybe take, like, be very quick to film, but it takes a lot of care. So, Dad, this movie came out two years after you were born. What is your relationship to it, though? It is a film that was one of your mother's favorites, and so when we, I don't know if we watched it while we were dating or if it was after we were first married, she wanted to see it, so I watched it. That was the first time I had seen it. I mean, I'm I'm familiar with it because, well, and, and you mentioned talking about this with why this era became so pronounced or profoundly defined by musicals. Well... Post-World War II, New York was the center of culture in the United States, and Broadway was huge. It was the golden age of Broadway. Tons of musicals, tons of plays. And the very best musicals ended up getting made into film because not everybody could get to New York to see them, and that's how they translated. Now, you know, I've seen uh, a recorded version of Hamilton streaming, so... The, the availability is different. So I'm familiar with Rodgers and Hammerstein. I was m- familiar with the songs more than the movie itself early on uh, because the music 
the music would make its way around the country during the 60s before the play was made into a film. So people were familiar with it. And I think it is tell, or it's a kind of a telltale that the Eastern establishment, the critics who got to see the plays, did pan this movie, but it was the rest of the country that had never had an opportunity to see it performed live who fell in love with it and transformed it into something much bigger than what the New York critics had uh, initially indicated. And that's kind of where my relationship to this is as well. The music, I think, is something that I don't remember the first time I heard several of these songs, but I know I've known them forever. But I've only seen the movie twice. This is actually only the second time I've ever seen it, and I think the first time I saw it was maybe 2020. So I probably went the first 30 years of my life without having seen this movie. Not that it was necessarily something that I actively tried not to watch. In fact, I would say it's probably the opposite. But it was just never one that crept up as a a huge interest for me, and I'm not really sure why, because I do enjoy the movie, but the songs have been with us for as long as I can fathom or remember. I mean, I you hear my favorite things at Christmas every year. Why? I have no idea. It has almost nothing to do with Christmas. I think there's one small line that has to do with Christmas. But other than that, that's a song that you hear every year and 50 different artists have covered it. So between that or uh, Do Re Mi or any of the other major songs, they've just been a part of our lives and you still have a cultural resonance among the younger generations that know these songs. Maybe to have not seen the movie, but the soundtrack is still there. And I think that's what probably separates this particular movie more than some of the other musicals of the time, because little girls are not singing stuff that's from West Side Story. They're not singing stuff from My Fair Lady, but they're singing stuff from this. That, I think that's one of the the testament of a, a true, like a really great film. It's what it's when it, it really carries such a weight. I mean, it's just amazing how people that haven't been born it, at the time when it came out actually watch it. Because I was born ten years later. I was born in seventy five, and for me, I I grew up in, in singing and dancing, and that's really like really what attracted me to the movie. And it was just, uh, it's one of those that, you know, you can't, you can't just like, there's some really great songs in it. Like I have confidence. So what do you think this is about Dan? (laughs) Quite frankly, and this this will come out when I get to my best performances, the music is the story. I mean, you could have had, Trash Pickup is the story, and interwove it with the music, and it still would have been a successful movie, I think, because the music is really the heart of the story. I mean, it's a compelling story in and of itself, and it made it more special, but the music itself would have made it successful regardless of the story. And so it's really... It's really about love and family and coming to terms with loss 
and to learn to appreciate what you have. Garbage man, garbage man, in the <laughs> morning you pick up. Garbage here, garbage there. What can we do with garbage everywhere? Well, he's long since dead, but you could have had Scatman Crothers yeah. in it for that matter. Uh, I'm really dating myself there. I think the music has a significant portion to defining the movie, but I don't think it's solely the only thing of what the movie is about. I think, no. realistically, if I were to put this into practice, and this is, I was going to save this for later, but I really think that the film is in three acts, and all three have different antagonists. So the first act, you have the nuns that are the antagonists. The second act, it's the captain. And the third act, it's the Third Reich. And all of them are trying to instill discipline, order, and particularly the third act, fear. And all of those are in juxtaposition with their counterpart being Maria, the free-spirited, musical, fun-loving person who brings out joy in everybody she touches. And that's the common denominator. Yeah. So, Dad, let's give a little bit more background on the movie then. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. When a young nun, Maria, Julie Andrews, proves too spirited for convent life in 1930s Austria, she is sent to serve as governess to seven children of a widowed naval officer, Captain Captain Georg von Trapp, Christopher Plummer. With the captain's wife having died years before, he has run the house as a disciplinarian with little fun, joy, or music. Soon, however, Maria is able to reopen the captain's heart towards his children and music. As this happens, the captain's fondness for Maria grows as well. However, when a commission in the Navy is offered by the Third Reich, in fact demanded of the captain, decisions must be made as to the future of the family. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Robert Wise as director, Ernest Lehman as writer, Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein, lyricists, Erwin Kostel for score, Julie Andrews as Maria, Christopher Plummer as Captain Von Trapp, Bill Lee overdubbed Plummer singing, Eleanor Parker as Baroness Elsa Von Schrader, Richard Hayden as Max Detweiler, Peggy Wood as Mother Abbess, Charmian Carr as Liesel Von Trapp, Heather Menzies as Louisa Von Trapp, Nicholas Hammond as Friedrich Von Trapp, Dwayne Chase as Kurt Von Trapp, Angela Cartwright as Brigida Von Trapp, Debbie Turner as Marta Von Trapp, and finally, Kim Carath as Gretel Von Trapp. Recognition for this movie, The Sound of Music, was released on March 2nd, 1965. It currently holds an 83% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 63% a 63 rating on Metacritic, and a 4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Four weeks after its theatrical release, it became the number one box office movie in the United States, from revenue generated by 25 theaters, each screening only 10 roadshow performances per week. It held the number one position for 30 of the next 43 weeks, and ended up the highest grossing film of 1965. One contributing factor in the film's early commercial success was the repeat business of many filmgoers. In some cities in the United States, the number of tickets sold exceeded the total population. By January 1966, the film had earned $20 million in distributor rentals from just 140 roadshow engagements in the U.S. and Canada. 
Worldwide, The Sound of Music broke previous box office records in 29 countries, including the United Kingdom, where it played for a record-breaking three years at the Dominion Theatre in London and earned £4 million in rentals and grossed £6 million, more than twice as much as any other film had taken in to that point. It was also a major success in the Netherlands, Hong Kong, and Tokyo, where it played for as long as two years at some theaters. It was not a universal success, however, with the film only enjoying modest success in France, and it was a flop in Germany. It also initially performed poorly in Italy, but a re-release after the Oscars brought better results. It was number one at the U.S. box office for a further 11 weeks in 1966, for a total of 41 weeks at number one. By November 1966, The Sound of Music had become the highest-grossing film of all time, with over $67.5 million in worldwide rentals and $125 million in gross receipts, surpassing Gone with the Wind, which held that distinction for over 24 years. It was still in the top 10 at the U.S. box office in its 100th week of release. The Sound of Music completed its initial four-and-a-half-year theatrical release run in the United States on Labor Day 1969, the longest initial run for a film in the United States. It was also the first film to gross over $100 million. By December 1970, it had earned $121.5 million in worldwide rentals, which was over four times higher than the film's estimated break-even point of $29.5 million in rentals. The film was re-released in 1973, and by the end of the 70s, it was ranked 7th in all-time North American rentals. The film's re-release in 1990 increased the total North American admissions to the third highest number of tickets sold behind Gone with the Wind and Star Wars. The Sound of Music eventually earned a total domestic gross of $163 million and a total worldwide gross of $286 million. Adjusted for inflation, the film earned about $2.366 billion at 2014 prices, placing it among the top 10 highest grossing films of all time. The Sound of Music soundtrack album reached the number one position on the Billboard 200 that year in the United States, and it remained in the top 10 for 109 weeks from May 1st, 1965, to July 16, 1967, and remained on the Billboard 200 chart for 238 weeks. The album was the best-selling album in the UK in 1965, 1966, and 1968, and the second best-selling album of the entire decade, spending a total of 70 weeks at the number one of the UK album's chart. It also stayed 73 weeks on the Norwegian charts, becoming the seventh best charting album of all time in that country. In 2015, Billboard named the album the second greatest album of all time. The Sound of Music was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Actress for Julie Andrews and Supporting Actress for Peggy Wood, and won for Best Picture, Director for Robert Wise, Editing, Sound, and Original Score for Erwin Kostel. It has appeared on the following lists for the AFI, 100 Years 100 Movies at number 55, 100 Years 100 Movies, 10th Anniversary Edition at number 40, 100 Years 100 Cheers at number 41, 100 Years of Musicals at number 4, 100 Years 100 Passions at number 27, 100 Years 100 Songs, The Sound of Music was number 10, My Favorite Things was number 64, and Do Re Mi was number 88. In 2001, The Sound of Music was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. Did you know? As part of his research for this movie, William Wyler met with the real Maria von Trapp and the mayor of Salzburg. Wyler was concerned that the local residents would be alarmed at seeing their buildings draped with Nazi flags and seeing stormtroopers in the streets only 25 years after the real thing had taken place. The mayor assured him that the residents had managed to live through the Anschluss, 
the first time and would survive it again. Other city officials were much more resistant to the idea of decorating Salzburg with Nazi colors. They soon changed their minds when the filmmakers said they would use newsreel footage instead. However, this footage was actually highly incriminating as it showed the Salzburgers openly welcoming the Nazis, something that the proposed scenes for the movie would not do. Did you know? The movie is based on Maria von Trapp's 1949 memoir, The Story of the Von Trapp Family Singers. She also published another book, Maria, in 1972, and said that while she was able to attend the opening of the musical on Broadway, she did not have the same luck for this movie when it premiered in 1965. She was able to convince 20th Century Fox to let her see a preview of the movie and expected an invitation to the premiere, but, quote, when I didn't hear anything about it and no invitation arrived, I really humbled myself to go and ask the producer whether I'd be allowed to come. He said he was very sorry, indeed, but there were no seats left. Did you know? The real Maria von Trapp claimed that this movie toned down her behavior during her stay at Nonberg Abbey. When asked in an interview if she was really that bad, she joked, I was worse. Did you know? Christopher Plummer intensely disliked working on this movie. He was known to refer to it as The Sound of Mucus, or S&M, and likened working with Dame Julie Andrews to being hit over the head with a big Valentine's Day card every day. Nonetheless, he and Andrews remained close friends until his death. Andrews claimed that Plummer's cynicism probably helped his performance and this movie, keeping it from being too sentimental. Did you know? Christopher Plummer admitted that he ate and drank heavily during filming to drown out his unhappiness with making this movie, and found plenty of opportunities to do both in Austria. His costume eventually had to be refitted for his extra weight. Did you know? When setting up for filming of the wedding scene, there was nobody at the altar to wed them when they reached the top of the stairs to the sanctuary. Someone had forgotten to summon the actor playing the bishop. According to Dame Julie Andrews, the real Archbishop of Salzburg at the time, Andreas Rohrrocker, is seen in the movie. Did you know? While the Von Trapp family hiked over the Alps to Switzerland in this movie, in reality, they walked to the local train station and boarded the next train to Italy. From Italy, they fled to London and ultimately to the U.S. Salzburg is in fact only a few miles away from the Austrian-German border and is much too far from either the Swiss or the Italian border for a family to escape by walking. Had the Von Trapps hiked over the mountains, they would have ended up in Germany near Adolf Hitler's mountain retreat. Did you know? After the Von Trapps fled Austria, their home was taken over by Heinrich Himmler, one of the key players of the Nazi party. Adolf Hitler personally visited Himmler there several times. Did you know? Very little background information on the real Captain Von Trapp was known or available to Christopher Plummer, so he took to the Salzburg Mountains with an interpreter. There, they met with Georg's nephew and asked him what the real man was like. The nephew told them that he was the most boring man he'd ever met. <laughs> uh, okay. And with that, we will take our first break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we will be discussing one of the great classic crime dramas, Training Day from 2001, directed by Antoine Fuqua, written by David Ayer, starring Denzel Washington, Ethan Hawke, Eva Mendes, Scott Glenn, and Dr. Dre. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Gentlemen, let's go to best performance then. Andrew, who do you have down? For me, I'm going to say Julie Andrews. 
Okay. She was my secondary performer. And I think that she definitely brings a lot to this film and defining it by her tone. Obviously, her singing voice is legendary, but there's just a whimsical nature of how she makes the Maria Von Trapp character come to life that I think imbues this movie with a lightheartedness, a somewhat song in your heart that I don't think a lot of other actresses could have pulled off. Dad, did you have her nominated for anything? I had her for secondary performance. My best performance was Rodgers and Hammerstein. Yeah, that was mine too, because I think, as you mentioned before, for me, the songs are bigger than the movie. You know, and I'm, I'm watching it, and I'm, I'm actually shocked by how little dialogue there really is in relation to a, a, what is a three-hour movie. If you were to take out the music, I think the, the film would have been about an hour long. That's still pretty good for a, a cinematic film. I mean, it wouldn't be feature length, but an hour's not too bad. But I mean, it's two-thirds of the movie is the music. But again, as you related before, and I, I agree with that point, the songs were something that have transcended the movie, and they've become much more a part of the culture than anything else. True. They completely define the tone of this film, and for that matter, are somewhat the title character. Yes, I know. We'll talk about that when we get to the most indelible moment. So we both already gave our best secondary performances. Andrew, who did you have down? Maybe Chris, Christopher Plummer, because he really, although it's sad that his singing voice was dubbed, uh, despite the fact that it wasn't his true singing voice, he did a really good job portraying Von um, Trapp. I've nominated him for most charismatic, to be quite honest. Part of it has to do with the relation of how he actually acts with his eyes. There's a big intensity and almost a ferocity through the first act of the movie where he's trying to instill discipline and he's whistling all the time. Obviously, the captain's whistle, not just like whistling a tune. But I think by the nature of him during the dance with Maria or eventually getting to the point where he kind of proposes in the gazebo there's just a softening of his features as he goes along and i think that to me was one of the more endearing parts of the film is watching his kind of transition slowly that you can see through his performance so for me i went with most charismatic for him dad who did you have for most charismatic julie andrews there's just she has such a presence throughout the film she just conveys a sense of innocence and but yet strength Agreed. Andrew, do you have a nominee for Most Charismatic? I think Charmaine uh, Carr. She did a really great job playing... Um, uh, Liesl. Liesl, sorry. <laughs> I had the... She, she's just... I just think it was re- really awesome what, what she did. And uh, the 60 going on 17 uh, number, I mean, she's she sang. I do think that's a unheralded part of the movie is that relationship between her and Rolf. Yes, obviously it deteriorates as the movie goes along, but I think it's really what gives this movie some extra strength to a younger audience is that they can understand the naivete of a young love in this situation where the guy turns out to be kind of a, well, a jerk, more or less. And 
by extension, yes, you can relate to Maria and all the other kids, but this is the one that has a little bit of edge and some tragedy and that uh, it imbues it with that extra punch of emotion that I think everybody kind of understands as it goes along. I also want to give a special shout out. I love the way this movie looks. I think Robert Wise did an excellent job in just some of the set pieces and storyboarding this entire movie. Yeah. As you've mentioned multiple times, the choreography is great, but I just also love just some of the outdoor shots of the 60s. There's a an aesthetic of how 60s movies looked kind of from an outdoor perspective. And I, I remember one particular shot where all the children go to the Abbey to try and find Maria, and they're all on the very right side of the frame but it's pulled back and you get this great shot of just a tree. And I'm not sure why that appealed to me as much as it did, but I just thought that the nature looking scenes, particularly because you're in the Hills, you're out kind of on the terrace a lot. You're out near the river or when the kids are climbing trees, there's a lot of outdoor shots through this entire movie and they just look gorgeous. So I thought he needed a special shout out since none of us had recognized him. It's nice when films show the local scenery and they didn't actually film inside the Abbey, but they filmed outside. So that's actually the, as far, from my understanding, that's actually the Abbey where Maria was. Uh, any of the indoor shots was done at the soundstage at 20th Century Fox in, in, in Los Angeles. So uh, even the gazebo scene was, was an indoor shot. I mean, considering it won five Academy Awards, oh my God. And the beginning, the opening shot when Maria's uh, up at the top in the hills and she does that circle where where we, 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 we get introduced and we see the Austrian mountains. It's just like gorgeous. All right, let's move to best scene then. My nominees, and you can add any that you'd like, but The Hills Are Alive, A Problem Like Maria, my favorite things, doe a deer, climbing trees, teaching a traditional Austrian waltz, Maria flees, Maria's return, the Salzburg festival, you'll never be one of them. Did I miss any? No. Like for myself, I like the, um, the lonely, uh, Godard's, uh, song that, that they, um, they did compared to the uh, stage version. Like there's differences between the stage version. And I just recently, a few years ago, actually went and saw it, the sound of music on stage. And it was, uh, it was kind of interesting how they used marinettes uh, for the lonely goat heart. And, and when, when they sang and I, I liked that's an, another scene that I liked in, in the movie. So dad, what do you think is the best scene? It's the turning point. It's when the uh, plumber chews out Andrews and then he hears the children singing in in the house, The Sound of Music, and it changes his perception, his attitude, and he comes to realize that he has been too stern and demanding and he needs to reach out and be more loving towards his children. So to me, that's the best scene because it's really the pivotal moment of the, of the film and the play. So when I said, did I miss any, apparently I missed that one. I mean, it's all part of the normal 
progression, but to me, that's a pivotal moment. Yes, I could buy into that one because he has a change of heart and you can see him starting to soften. And there's clearly a delineation as to how his progression as a character goes throughout the course of the film. But for me, the best scene is actually the teaching of the traditional Austrian waltz because that scene is so expertly done between the two actors and how the filming goes that no words are really ever spoken. And yet you know that there's a certain attraction between the two that you haven't really gotten huge hints on up until that point, but it defines the second half of the movie. And I thought that what we get from the two as well as from the filmmaking I thought was an excellent job. And so maybe just from that standpoint, maybe not to the importance of the story or the plot or anything else, I just think that's the best scene. I liked both, but I was thinking for me, it's the gazebo scene between the two. So the first gazebo scene or the second one? The, no, the second between Maria and Georg. Uh, I, I, I like that one because that was when they they came to terms with the, the uh, like the finally solidifying their love between each other before they get married in the in the abbey. So favorite scene for me, I'm gonna actually go with the final performance of Edelweiss in the film, and that's at the festival. I think I related this to you over the weekend, Dad, but I think I if you remember back to either of our Casablanca visits, I have said repeatedly that. When they sing Les Marseillaise in the bar, it always gets me and I become emotional. The The way that that song is performed and then the crowd joins in, it gives me almost a certain level of chill through my body. So for me, that's one of my favorites because I think it's by far the thing that moved me the most. I can enjoy the songs. I can sing along with them. They're really catchy, but that's the thing that really moved me. There's also the scene in the Abbey the very last scene before they actually escape and how the nuns, the, the, there's a funny moment, how the nuns removed the, the car, the car parts from the cars and said, and, and I'm sorry, nun, uh, please forgive me. I have sinned. And there's like the, the, the humor from the nuns too. So dad, what was your favorite scene? My favorite was the escape itself, the hiding in the Abbey, the getting away, the confrontation with Rolf, it's a it's a degree of intrigue. It's uh, suspenseful, and I just like the way it was done. It was done in shadows, uh, which uh, helped convey the uh, climax and uh, the suspense of the scenes themselves. So I'm curious to see where both of you went with this, but most indelible moment, I think it has to be the opening. It's on all of the posters. It's the famous helicopter shot that opens the movie. For me, that's easily the thing that you think about this movie. That's the first thing that you see in your mind's eye. Yes. Yeah, that is, that's the most, <laughs> that I could do. yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, when I think of the sound of music, I think about those hills. Yeah, and if you ever want, if the audience ever wants, try YouTube. Listening to Julie Andrews describing the filming of that scene in an interview with Stephen Colbert is just priceless talks about how the helicopter would come and it would knock her over and she'd go doing cartwheels and then they'd clean her up. And by the end, she's flipping off the director when he's coming in because he keeps saying, we need to do another shot. And uh, 
I could just picture World Sweetheart flipping off the helicopter. Julie Andrews is a true trooper because she she was raised in England in vaudeville, and she made her mark on Broadway in My Fair Lady. I just really commend her for uh, for her professionalism. All right, that's a good spot for our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, you can still sign up for our newsletter at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com, find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast, or find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, unfortunately. Tucker Wired was an American television editor. He um, edited uh, three shows that I was uh, found very uh, entertaining and popular, uh, Murphy Brown, the Carol Burnett Show, and Alice. He was a five-time Emmy winner for television editing. Specifically for, I believe, all five were the Murphy Brown Show, where he, I think, won his first one for the pilot episode. It was a very, very well-done show. I never got to see the reboot, and my, you know, I would have kind of been interested to see it, but it was good while it was on. Ralph Eagleston was an American animator. He worked on The Lion King and Wally. He had been recruited while you know, doing the uh, Toy Story, was being developed by Pixar. Uh, he uh, won an Oscar for a short film for uh, as director for The Birds, which was a Pixar film. Yes, it was one of the first animated short winners in 2001. But he also contributed to most of the major early Pixar projects, including I think everything from Up to The Incredibles to, you mentioned Toy Story already, but Monsters, Inc., all were included in that, and he unfortunately passed away at what most people would deem an early age, 56. I would consider that a very early age. Is that because you're 58? Yes. I see. We also lost Robert LuPon at 76. He was an American actor, a long-time character actor, starred in films... Jesus Christ Superstar and a chorus line. And he also had a recurring character on The Sopranos. Yeah, he was the psychiatrist's husband on the show, or I guess ex-husband. But I think if most people would see his face, they probably would recognize him, at least fans of The Sopranos show. I mean, he was a fairly recurring character. And he had a fairly recognizable face. That being said, another of The Sopranos character actors passing away this year and we're just losing more and more of them by the week apparently we also lost amanda mackey 70 she was an american casting director some of the films that are uh, were most known were the fugitive uh, a league of their own and the hunt for red october so i did tie in the obituary in the article that's tied to our uh, in the uh, show notes for our web page and It surprised me how many of the major movies from the late 80s and early 90s that she had her hand in. But, you know, even from The the Fugitive, A League of Their Own, and The Hunt for Red October, you get a sense for the kind of movies that were on that list. So I would encourage people to probably look that up because she had her hand in casting some of the best movies that are now classics that we would think of from that period of time. We lost uh, Joe E. Tetta, American actor. He was 85. Longtime uh, television actor, character actor. He had uh, had a recurring role on Beverly Hills 90210, The Unholy Rollers, and The Rockford Files, which uh, 
was uh, a vehicle for James Garner. And another unfortunate passing for alumnus of Beverly Hills 90210. We've had, I think, two different people from that show pass away recently. One a couple of weeks ago, and I think one earlier this year. But it's kind of tough to think that some of the people who made their careers in the late 80s, early 90s are now, unfortunately, meeting their end. And then lastly, we lost William Reynolds, 90, an American actor. He hadn't done anything in quite some time. He had been in the television show, The FBI, where he was the partner to Ephraim Zimblis Jr. Uh, he did The Gallant Men and The Islanders. He retired from acting after the cancellation of the FBI show and went in and became a highly successful businessman out in California. And before that, I mean, he'd done a number of different character acting performances across TV for a number of years. So obviously a very successful person. And we memorialize all of these and their contributions to film and television with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. All right, gentlemen, best slash funniest lines. My first nominee, Maria. When the Lord closes a door, somewhere he opens a window. Maria, you know how Sister Bertha always makes me kiss the floor when we've had a disagreement? Well, lately I've been kissing the floor whenever I see her, just to save time. Do you have any nominees, Andrew? I'll, I'll go with the uh, the one with the the nuns and say they confess their sins to removing the the car parts from uh, the Nazi cars. Perhaps those who would warn you that the Anschluss is coming, and it is coming, Captain. Perhaps they would get further with you by setting their words to music, Captain von Trapp. If the Nazis take over Austria, I have no doubt, Herr Zeller, that you will be their entire trumpet section. You flatter me, Captain. Oh, how clumsy of me. I meant to accuse you. This is one of my favorites, Kurt. Only grown-up men are scared of women. I wondered if you'd do that. (laughs) Do you have any other nominees, Andrew? Not really, right now. Mother Abbas. Maria, these walls were not meant to shut out problems. You have to face them. You have to live the life you were born to live. The Baroness. There's nothing more irresistible to a man than a woman who's in love with him. That was my last one. So this will be my last nominee then. Max, I like rich people. I like the way they live. I like the way I live when I'm with them. All right, you both out? Yes. All right, because this is a musical, we have a special category that we only do during musicals, best song. And for me, I think it's quite obvious, again, because it moved me. I'm going to go with Edelweiss. Andrew, what is the best song to you? I like the Lonely Goatherd song. The marionette playing, how they make everything dance during that is extraordinary. It's also extremely catchy. Dad, what do you think is the best song? Edelweiss. As I, I think I mentioned when we were talking earlier this week, that was the last song written by Rodgers and Hammerstein together. Actually, Roger or Oscar Hammerstein wrote a draft and gave it to Richard Rodgers because... He was dying of cancer. He had, uh, was in advanced stages of uh, stomach cancer, died nine months later. Uh, this was kind of like his last present, his little This Is My Farewell song. And it has a lot of meaning as a result of that, I think. All right. 
Then let's go to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. Dad, do you want to start us off? Yes, I'll do that. All right. We divide this, as, as you may know, Andrew, we try to do half the public and half the industry. And I think there can be no doubt that for the public, just by the sheer fact of its the legs that it has maintained, its popularity, it is a perfect five for the public. I'm going to go down just a little bit with the industry because it has, to some extent, a little bit become antiquated because there aren't musicals being made anymore. The industry itself is kind of poo-pooed them. I think it's in large part because there aren't a large portion of musicals being done in New York the way they used to be. So I want a 4.5 for industry for a 9.5 total. Okay. For me, I can't disagree. The five for the public is obvious, given that this is a movie that, what is it, uh, 57 years old at this point, and the music is still ingrained on young children who have nothing to do with this, or probably are 40 years later than this movie. I don't know. For me, outside of maybe The Wizard of Oz, this is probably one of the few children's movies that's an actual movie and not some animated Disney classic. And so by extension, I think it's an obvious five just from that. But then let's carry it over to the industry. And I went with a 3.5 on that side because I do think that the industry recognizes its place in cinema history, but mostly for feigning a recognition of what the audience thinks of it. I don't think critically there are a lot of people that look at this and say, oh, what a great and extraordinary movie that made cinema history that pushed the odds or the boundaries of where things could be. And I do think that there is a souring on this type of movie by comparison to other genres. Again, the critics are more heavily focused on you know, certain drama pieces and historical dramas and, and things of that nature, as opposed to musicals or comedies or horror. And it's one of the reasons why we do the show is to give them their place back in history of movies. So I ended up at a 3.5 for the industry because, again, I just don't think the industry has as much of an appreciation. This has always been a publicly driven or audience driven narrative with this show as far or excuse me with this movie for its legacy and so i ended up at an 8.5 for me i do agree the five for the public but i went with the four thank you the math is really easy then yeah well part of the reason why i went for a four is because one there are still musicals like it's not as much as like the 50s and 60s movie musicals because not well but they are, there is a little bit of, you know, over the years, there have been uh, movie musicals that have come out based on what's been done on Broadway, um, like Dear Evan Hansen. You know, we also have the filming of like Hamilton and stuff like that. But for, for me, they botched some of the storylines, but it's, you know, overall, it's a really good film. I don't know. I mean, to be honest with you, I'd rather give it a 10 total, <laughs> but 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 I'm giving it I'm giving it a four uh, I'm giving it a five and a four four for the industry just because. All right, so that's a nine average between us. Impact significance, obviously a five. I really don't think that there's any two ways about this. This has as much cultural impact on an audience as 
just about any other movie that might be out there. I think this is in probably a category amongst itself with the other great movies of their time that became the highest grossing movie of all time in that initial run or that initial period. So when you want to think about The Godfather or Jaws or Star Wars, the big movies that really hit and caused a massive impact on society as a whole, this is one that is a definite five. And even though there were some detractors from the industry portion of it, I'm going to make up for that just because of the impact it made from the audience perspective. So I'm not even going to do the two categories, really. I'm just going to say this is a full 10. This had as much of an impact as just about any other movie that came in and swept everything. And so from that standpoint, I'm going to give it a full 10. Public is a five because, again, the ticket sales, the popularity and such. Uh, I had to give it some marks down because there was a certain element of the public at the time and the critics felt this was a little saccharine. I mean, even Christopher Plummer didn't really care for it as much because he thought it was overly sentimental. So I'm going to give it a four for the industry because of that. I think there was a certain element of the industry which kind of did panned it because of its sentimentality. So uh, as a result, I'm going to go with a nine. Andrew, where do you fall? I'm going to give it a 10 with you just because it, you know, it's one of the movies that's been around for a long time. It's one of those Christmas staple movies, to be honest with you as well. And it's just, you know, overall, it's because of the feel good. If you want a feel good movie, then the sound of music is the way to go. All right. So that's a 9.67 average between us. Novelty. Dad, you want to start off? Sure. One of the reasons why this performed so poorly in Germany and Austria, this was the third film about the Von Trapp family. There were two others that were made and released in Europe. Moreover, this is a musical that was made into the, the film itself, so there's not a lot novel about it. So I had to give it marks down for that, so I went with a 6.5 because... It is just kind of retelling a story that had already been told several times. In fact, I believe there was even a documentary released in the United States that predates the, the movie itself. I'll do you one better. It's four degrees removed from the original because the film from 1955, and there was a sequel, the film itself is actually the basis for the story. So it's nothing more than a recreation of a film that already happened and then a recreation of a play that was based on the film. Yes. So it's three degrees removed from its inauthenticity, and then on top of it, it's just rehashed from other stuff. I think the few novel things about this are probably the direction, the choreography that are taking place more in a larger setting, and the fact that you have it in a wide-open Salzburg and in the housing and these types of sets that are a little bit larger than what you could produce, obviously, on a stage. That being said, so instead of just giving it a, like, run-of-the-mill, like, five, I'm going to give it a slight boost because I think this is the peak of 60s musicals. If you ask anybody to name a Broadway 1960s musical, this has probably got to be up at the top. And so from that standpoint, I'll end up at a six. Andrew, where are you coming down on this? 
one of the things is they didn't like I I can understand the the like the nunnery they weren't able to film in the nunnery out of respect but it was also a they changed some of the songs from the uh, stage version but I liked how things were done like the lonely Godard scene in the musical it, they don't have the marionettes going uh, uh, in the musical it was kind of it, it was fascinating for me to compare between the stage and the film to me I. I wouldn't really give it that low of a score, but it's not like a perfect 10. I could be honest with you that. It's just, I'm going to give it uh, an 8. So that ends as a 7.5 between the three of us on average. Classicness, Dad, your category. Again, I always start at the 7 mark and go up or down. That has not always been the case. You have adopted my scoring system then. You used to be at a 5. Okay. Anyway... We have a strong female character. We have, for that matter, the nuns themselves are strong female characters. I don't think Liesl's that far off either. Yeah. And, uh, of course, we have a uh, true villain in the Nazis. So um, there's nothing that doesn't age well as a result of this. But uh, it could have had... uh, It is a little too sentimental at times, so I didn't couldn't give it a really high mark. I went with an 8.5 simply because of uh, just the the nature of the film being a little on the um, sweet side at times. So I think this lends itself to at least considering a 10. I think it's in the same category as something like The Wizard of Oz that is one of these ultra-classic Hollywood movies that pretty much does not age, no matter what time it is. And so you have to consider it. But my reason for bumping it down slightly is not for the sentimentality. I think that actually is what boosts it. For me, I'm going to bump it down because of the rife historical inaccuracies. So I'm going to end up at a nine. Andrew, what do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, I think what does lower it is a bit the inaccuracy but it, it, I love the cinematography, the way it was edited and put together. And yeah, I'm going to go with the nine as well. So that's an 8.83 average between us. Rewatchability. We usually let our guest who picked the movie go first on this one. I'm going for a 10 because I've watched it so many times and I love it so much. And also because it's a feel good movie. It, it is a classic. Dad? As long as I have your your grandmother, your mother, and your two sisters within my life, this will be a film that will be rewatched. I think that I end up watching this about once a year because they want to rewatch it. Because it's not necessarily my choice. I can't give it a 10, but I'll give it a 9 simply because I rewatch it. I don't object to rewatching it. And I regularly rewatch it as a result. This is not one that's going to rank high on my personal favorites list, just from happenstance. I have some other films that are just going to appeal to me more because of how they hit me or they strike me. But this is a pretty easy rewatch. To be honest, three hours did not seem like three hours. And I thought this breezed through pretty quickly. It does drag in a couple of spots. I could do without Mother Abbas's song, like, two-thirds into the movie. To me, that one just is kind of very slow-moving, and she's lip-syncing it anyway. 
but I understand that it's an important part of the movie. But as such, I actually, given the fact that this isn't a personal favorite of mine, I ended up at an 8.5, and I think that's pretty good. So that's a 9.17 between the three of us. The last category is audience score. We had an 89% for Google users and a 91% for Rotten Tomato users for a straight 9. So to repeat the categories, we had a 9 for Legacy, a 9.67 for Impact Significance, a 7.5 for Novelty, an 8.83 for Classicness, a 9.17 for Rewatchability, and a 9 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 53.17, and currently putting it on our list, Between the Best Years of Our Lives and Pulp Fiction, just outside the top 10. All right, so remaining questions, gentlemen. Any to be had? The And I'm drawing a blank as to his name. The friend who uh, became the promoter. Max? Yes, Max. I, I can't imagine things went well for him with the Nazis after they left. I would imagine not. Um, I think that might have been a... I'm not sure if that was a filler character. It's a fictionalized character. Probably a composite at best. But again, if you're living it as the real world being the world of the film, you got to imagine that guy is going to get a visit from the SS. Yeah, well, I I just I I would encourage the listeners to uh, to check if it interests them to check out the actual real story and and, and read Maria's book. Uh, It's really fascinating. I actually got a. I actually read it. <laughs> I've seen it. And I just was like, you know, I was just fascinated. It's interesting how they turned such a, a, a tragic period in, in, in history and, and, and made it into like a feel-good musical that there was some goodness that came that came out. They, they escaped. And uh, unlike like some other, uh, other real-life stories. On the same vein as your question, Dad, how did the German soldiers not see the escape coming, given that Max said it was the Von Trapps family's last performance like three times before it happened? Well, that was because Georg was going to be going into the Navy. Yeah, but given that they tried to escape already once, that's some pretty big hubris. Well, you know. All right, my second one. What actually was the problem with Maria? She was too lighthearted. Apparently you need to just listen to funeral dirges when you're a nun? Well, you have to comply. You have to be orderly. Disciplined. They don't like those people who go against the grain. You know, the people that, I don't know, 400 years before might have said uh, Martin Luther was a troublemaker? Yeah. Oh, that organized religion. I guess that's why it uh, attracts me to the movie. Because she, she, she was a rebel. So I have no more remaining questions. Is anybody else? Nope. Well, thank you for being on with us, Andrew. Where can people find your work? Right now, I'm just on social media because I've been I've been in between projects. So just uh, uh, on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, uh, so Instagram mainly uh, Andrew at Andrew Mondia. And uh, thank you for having me. And I'm glad that we got to talk about the sound of music, and I could hear. A different perspective, because for me, I love the sound of music, and it's nice to hear other people's perspective. Yes, and this was definitely a good pick to do, one that's been on our list for quite a while. Thank you again for being on, and that does it for this week. Thank you for listening. 
Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing one of the great classic crime dramas, Training Day from 2001, directed by Antoine Fuqua, written by David Ayer, starring Denzel Washington, Ethan Hawke, Ava Mendez, Scott Glenn, and Dr. Dre. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.